Hello, Regeneration. Uh, we'll be looking at the shortest book in the Old Testament today. And for some of you, you may have never read anything from this book until now or know what this book is about. And I encourage you to study all scripture, the, the entire counsel of God. As Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I'll uh, be reading Obadiah a little bit later. I just wanted to start out by giving a little bit of background because we're going to cover this book um, in one sermon. When looking at the Old Testament, there are quite a few books written by prophets, and the prophetical books are broken into two groups. It's major prophets and minor prophets. Now, the major prophets doesn't mean that they are kind of better prophets. What it actually means is that they wrote the bigger books. And so the minor prophets wrote smaller books like Obadiah. There are two types of major and minor prophet books, and they are either pre-exilic or post-exilic. The reason for this is that the main event in the latter part of the Old Testament is the captivity. Now, the children of God were taken captives by the Assyrians as well as the Babylonians. The Assyrian Empire, that captivity took place with the northern kingdom, Israel. And the other captivity was the Babylonian captivity, which was in the southern kingdom, Judah. And the people there were, were separated from one another, dispersed throughout the empire, brought to Babylon, and much of Judah was destroyed during this time, and many people, especially notable, powerful people, were exiled specifically to Babylon. Now, the Babylonians took those leaders of Judah out of Judah, literally removing them from power, and they would not have any reign for the next 70 years, which is what God had told the prophets already. After the 70 years, Judah was just not recognizable anymore. Partly because most of the people who would recognize it would have died. And those who were, were still alive were kind of up in age and not well enough to make the trek back to their homeland. But mostly because everything had changed. Everything was totally different. The letters written by the pre-exilic prophets had these warnings about being taken captive. They wrote warnings to the people before the captivity. The post-exilic prophets wrote letters after the exile. Now, there are prophets that have both pre- and post-exilic writings in their book, and Jeremiah is one of those prophets. And both pre- and post-exilic prophets have very important messages to give to us. Obadiah is a post-exilic prophet. He's writing about after the captivity of Israel and Judah. And one of the really interesting things about Obadiah is that it's not written to Jews. It's a book that is addressing the Edomites, who are descendants of Esau. Now, who is Esau? We need to look back to Father Abraham. I know that many of you have that song going through your head right now. But Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had two sons. One was named Jacob, the other Esau. 
Esau and Jacob, they were twins, but Esau was the firstborn. Jacob was to be the one who would inherit the promises of Abraham. And Isaac, which was really out of the ordinary because the firstborn son was to be the one who would receive the father's inheritance, which would mean that it should be Esau's inheritance. That should be Esau's blessing. Well, Esau really didn't pay much attention about his inheritance. And Jacob did. And Jacob took that blessing from Esau in a very conniving way. And when Esau found out what Jacob had done, Jacob took off, and he's AWOL for over two decades. In that time of fleeing, he gets married twice. He has a boatload of children from his wives and his concubine, and that's a story for another time. And so this is where the 12 tribes of Israel come from. Jacob finds out that his dad Isaac is ill, and so he wants to head home. As he's heading home, he does realize, you know, I haven't been home in over 20 years. And during this entire time, I think my brother hates me. Well, they run into each other. Jacob does travel to Isaac. And there seems to be peace between Jacob and Esau. But things are really different between the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob. They're not as forgiving as grandfather Esau. The inheritance blessing thing for Esau wasn't that big of a deal. Esau just kind of rolled with it. But it was a huge deal to his descendants. And this taking of what was rightfully Esau's comes to haunt Jacob's descendants. For generations, for, for centuries, these relatives hate each other. Israel goes into Egyptian slavery for 400 years. Moses then leads them out of slavery. And it takes them forever to get to the promised land when it shouldn't have taken them that long at all. And one of the places that they walked through was Edom. This is where Esau and his descendants were. The people of Jacob asked the people of Edom if they could go through their land to get to the promised land. The Edomites said, no. No way. No chance. Why? Because the Edomites still hated Israel for what Jacob did to their ancestor Esau. And how that inheritance, that blessing was taken from them. There was so much bitterness, so much resentment that even a significant period of time, hundreds of years, couldn't heal this wound. Even after they knew that the Israelites had lived as slaves for 400 years in Egypt, they still couldn't forgive them. Actually, the Edomites were actually very, very happy. They were ecstatic to hear about Israel's enslavement, their bondage. They were really happy to hear of this catastrophe, this disaster, this calamity that Israel was experiencing. And though they thought Israel... They just thought that they were finally getting what they deserved. And so they rejoiced over this. So delighted at this disastrous slavery that happened to Israel. And it's not like Israel didn't have warning. Prophet after prophet warned Israel, telling them 
that if they didn't repent, they would be brought back into captivity. They were set free from Egypt. They ended up going to the promised land, prophet after prophet, telling them, you need to turn to God. And so history tells us what happened to them. Esau's descendants, the Edomites, watched all of this unfold, and and they were so thrilled to watch what would happen to Israel. From going into slavery in Egypt to coming back and saying no to them, to now they did occupy the promised land, but now they're being brought into captivity, nothing could make them happier. And so Obadiah writes this letter to the Edomites. People who were elated to see others suffer, delighted to see others in hardship, excited to see them in pain. There's so much suffering, hardship, and pain in our world today. What COVID has done, what the racial tensions in our country have done, what wildfires have done, what hurricanes have done. How are, how are we looking at all of this? Is there any joy at all in others' pain, in others' suffering, when we see them experiencing that? And maybe you're justifying your degree of happiness with pointing out, you know, they deserve that. They deserve what they're getting. They're, they're not completely innocent. They, they have something to do with what's happening to them. I find myself with this attitude often. Actually, every time I drive in the carpool lane, I have this kind of an attitude. Every time I'm legitimately in the carpool lane during carpool hours, and then I see others who are not. And so this holier-than-thou attitude comes over me, and I'm so bothered, and I'm just wishing, hoping that a CHP would be around to give them a citation. I'm just hoping for that. And the sad thing is, is that I know that if I saw it, I'd be stoked. I'd cheer. Like, yes, you deserve that. See, there's some Edomite inside of me. There's probably some Edomite inside of you. When we witness someone get what they deserve, there's this feeling of satisfaction for many of us. A criminal who's been on the run for decades finally gets caught. And many people think, good, he finally gets what he deserves. And especially if it was a a horrific crime, like like some mobster responsible for the deaths, there's something in us that cheers when people get what they deserve. And so let's pause for a moment and ask, how does God feel about this? There's a tendency for us to be happy about others' suffering especially when we think they deserve to suffer for what they've done. And we need to pause and not attempt to justify how we're feeling and ask, is God happy? Does he take pleasure in other people's suffering, even if they deserve it? And it would seem that God 
doesn't find pleasure in that when I read the Bible. Because all of us deserve judgment, yet God gave us a Savior, a Redeemer. He did not want to see you and I wallow in our suffering and our, in our pain and in our sin. He does not enjoy watching us suffer. Therefore, it's reasonable, it's logical to think that God is not pleased with us finding joy in other people's pain and suffering. Adam had such resentment and bitterness toward Israel that they found themselves happy when Israel suffered. And God doesn't want us like this. God doesn't want us to find pleasure in the pain and the suffering of others. Let's read Obadiah now with that background. Uh, let's just read this entire chapter. Verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out, all your allies have driven you to the border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Let's pause here. What was it that was so bad that God led Obadiah to write this prophecy addressed to Edom? And here's the key verse. Verse 10 is the key verse of Obadiah. Verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. 
and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shephard shall possess the cities of Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Whoa, God. I mean, you know Edom's history. You know Edom's history. Haven't they been through enough already? Their inheritance, their blessing was stolen hundreds of years ago. And not only that, look at Israel. God, you, you warned Israel for how long? Prophet after prophet after prophet. You warned them for decades. You told them year after year after year that if they didn't repent, that if they didn't turn their heart toward you, if they didn't stop doing evil and do good, you would judge them. You would judge them with this captivity. Why, God, would you be angry at Edom for being happy at your judgment toward Israel? I mean, isn't this what you'd expect, God? Like, we'd be happy about that, about your justice. We were the ones stolen from. They took what was ours. They didn't turn to you. They turned away from you, and they were judged. And wouldn't you expect us to be happy about how all that took place? No. The Lord expects mercy. God expects us to be merciful people. God does not want us to gloat over others' pain, others' suffering. Actually, God wants us to take a step further and he wants us to actively do good. He doesn't want us to be neutral. He wants us to actively do good. The people in Nazi Germany who didn't actively persecute the Jews, who did nothing, even though they knew what was going on, what do you think about God's thoughts towards their neutrality? They didn't do anything directly to harm the Jews. They didn't do anything at all. Is God pleased with the inaction, with being neutral? It doesn't seem that God would be pleased with this. So, did God expect the Edomites to kind of take arms and come to Israel's defense? I don't know if God wanted them to take it to that extent. But I do know God wants us to be merciful people. He wants us to be people who actively do good. That even though God is sovereign and he's in control, what he wants to be done will be done. It doesn't change our attitude of mercy, to have mercy towards those who are in pain, who are suffering. We are to be people of mercy. 
We already know that we're no better than anyone else. And we are, we are not put in a place to judge anyone. We know that God is the judge. We don't cheer for the demise of people. And that's what the Edomites did. When, when Israel was taken captive, they, they went to Jerusalem and they partied. They went to the Temple Mount and they celebrated. And God told them, you're next. See, they weren't innocent either. The difference between Israel and the Edomites is that Israel had a redeemer while Edom didn't. And this would lead them to be destroyed for good, forever, to stubble. And this is the case for all of us in the world. We are all guilty. We are all sinful. The difference in those of us with Jesus on our side is that we are redeemed like Israel. And those without Jesus will go the way of Edom. The thing is, God is not happy about rejoicing when people go to hell. There's no rejoicing in people going to hell. There's no rejoicing in people getting what they deserve. We all deserve hell. It's, it's a horrible place of being. Why would we celebrate such demise, such pain, such suffering? We're, we're not the ones vindicated when others get judged. We're vindicated when Jesus took our sins upon himself, upon the cross. What happens to others doesn't vindicate us. So why would we be happy about their judgment? I praise the Lord for leading us to study Obadiah today. Reason being is I've just been hearing these rumblings from Christians about the current state of the world, the current state of the nation, the current state of our state, of our city, and all that is happening in the world right now is judgment upon all of those things. The virus, the political division, the, the financial disaster, the unrest, the chaos, natural disasters like wildfires and hurricanes. Whatever these unfortunate events are, we're not to rejoice in it. We are to extend mercy. We are to identify people's pain and minister to them. I'm not hearing about it as much from our church. But I do hear this type of thinking within the larger context of church and, it, and it's a wrong attitude. It's a judgmental attitude. It's not a merciful one. We don't wish judgment on anyone. We already know we're no better. We, we don't even know what a just judgment would be. We have no idea what God is doing in other people's lives, what they've been through, what their motives are, where their heart is, where God is leading them in this path towards everlasting. We don't know any of that stuff. How can we say something is just when we don't even have all the information? Only God does. Take a look at Proverbs 24, starting in verse 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased. 
and turn his anger from him. It's not our place to rejoice when others are hurting. And we misrepresent God when we're judgmental and we aren't merciful. God doesn't find joy in judgment. That's, that's not God's heart. This is God's heart. Take a look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. It's one of the major prophets. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's the Lord's heart. Even toward the wicked, even toward your enemies and the people you don't agree with and the people you dislike and the people you think are getting what they deserve, this is the heart of God towards them. Our God is a merciful God. Yet, we're so hell-bent for others to face justice. I mean, look at what's happening in our state, in our city, in our country. We just love it. And people are just eating it all up to see the other party suffer, to see others be in pain, to see others wrong. Thank God justice wasn't executed upon me from God or upon you. You see, we want mercy for ourselves, but we want justice for others. But how about we as fallen people, we just want mercy all around. Let's just extend mercy to everybody, not the judgment. And it would be a much, much better world if we were just all merciful. We are making such a terrible world to live in when we are actually more judgmental than God is. And that's what we're living in right now. People just slinging stuff at each other, slinging judgment, slinging condemnation, slinging bitterness and resentment. A whole lot of judgment going on right now in our world, in our country. Not enough mercy. We are so harsh with each other. A celebration when the other side experiences calamity. So happy about it. People gloating at the demise of the other side. They, they love to see people on the other side ruined. When we get to heaven, I think we're in for quite a shock. We're going to be in shock at who's there. I think we'll be in complete shock at also who isn't there. I think there's also going to be shock that you're there. I think we're going to find out just how merciful God is when we get to heaven. There won't be any talk about what someone deserves. Those who have faith will be covered by Jesus, who came to save us. But there will be some surprises. Yes, we are against evil, but we aren't against people. We have to love people, extend mercy to people, 
Don't be like the Edomites who loved that Israel suffered. And God wants us to have compassion. He, he doesn't want us to be joyful at others' pain. When terrible things happen to, to persons we love, we, we don't rejoice over it. it. It pains us. God wants us to meet people where they're at. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14 Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We need to be in the moment with people, whether they are rejoicing or weeping. To be present in their moment. To be where they are at. Don't be like the Edomites. There's no pleasure when others suffer. And when there is, we need to check it. I need to check every time I'm in the carpool lane. Just like today when I was with my daughter and legitimately there and saw other people not. That's not a godly justice that we have. It's a distortion of justice. Who are we to judge whom God shows mercy to? Exodus 33, verse 19. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is more gracious and he is more merciful than we think. All people are made in the image of God and we all need Jesus. Especially those going the opposite way of Jesus. And our judgment, our condemnation and harshness is not going to lead them to Jesus. Probably not. Our mercy Grace, compassion, kindness, that'll work better. Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O men, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O men... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? As Christians, our, our sins are forgiven. We've been forgiven. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been set apart for heaven. We are holy We've been given so much. Why would we celebrate the demise of others? 
We are to be who we are as Christians. Merciful, compassionate, gracious, loving, good, kind. We need to love people into the kingdom. We need to look for God in every situation. Look for how God would respond to people who are against him, who are against you. God's heart is one of redemption, of salvation. It is not condemnation. Even for the people against him, his heart is not like that for them. God's heart breaks for those who don't know him. We have to have a heart like God's, who came to seek and to save the lost. Didn't he save you and me? There was a time we were lost. There are those who are lost today who need Jesus. God wants to save the world and he's using you and me to do it. Who do we find ourselves against? Who is the most repulsive person to you? Here's the challenge. To extend mercy to them. Man, are you serious? To extend grace to them. Whatever group you find yourself against, look for the heart of God to extend compassion to them. God loves them. He wants the best for them. And you might be the very person he is using to touch them, to show them the love of God. You've been saved to save others. Psalm chapter 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. You've been pulled out of the pit of destruction. We don't jump back in. Your feet are set upon the rock, making your steps secure so that we can help others out of that pit, so that we can draw them out of that pit. You don't do that by judging them. You do that by being merciful, extending mercy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Forgive us for hearts that are not like yours. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with mercy, with compassion, with kindness, with goodness, with grace, that we would imitate you, Jesus. Lord, to think happiness when others are suffering. How sad. I pray, Lord, that we would be active in doing good. And there is so much good to be done today. Equip us, Lord, to do that in your name. Amen. If you have your communion elements, um, let's bring those out. First, the 
bread of life. Jesus' body broken for us. There is no need for us to condemn. There is no need for us to judge. God is the judge. Our job is to extend mercy. Let's take this in remembrance of Jesus and the mercy he extended to us to forgive us of our sins, to vindicate us of our guilt and our shame. And the fruit of the vine. Jesus' blood spilled for us. To end all this bickering and this war and this chaos that we have with each other. That we can look to the Prince of Peace. Who promises to come back for us. We pray in anticipation of your return, Lord Jesus. Let's take this in remembrance of him. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. I pray we become more and more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.